Hello, I'm Sean Finnegan, and you are listening to Restitutio, a podcast to get you thinking about biblical and historical Christianity, to inspire you to follow Christ, and to convict you to lead a consecrated life. Today's episode is a theology of nonviolence. I presented this talk at the 18th Theological Conference held near Atlanta, Georgia. In it, I present a case for the radical practice of loving our enemies. Whether you believe Christians can and should use violence to defend themselves or others, or if you think more along the lines of Christian pacifism, this talk will familiarize you with the main reasons why some Christians, like me, hold to nonviolence. Essentially, my case finds its roots in taking Jesus' command, love your enemies, literally, along with the apostles' instructions to never return evil for evil. My case is couched in proleptic ethics, such that Christians are now, even before the kingdom arrives, in all of its magnificent glory, embodying the kingdom in whatever ways we can. In other words, I believe God calls us to live the way we will live then, now, as a testimony of what is to come. Lastly, I tackle the issue of early Christian history and demonstrate that the writings we have from the first few centuries testify that the church was nonviolent. Please do not judge my position on this as liberal or cowardly, the two most common charges, but realize that I'm basing my beliefs on the testimony of Scripture and that it takes a heck of a lot more courage to love one's enemy than merely reciprocate violently. Tonight I'll be presenting a positive case for nonviolence. Uh, I realize that not everyone agrees on this subject, and uh, so this should be a lively question time. In uh, preparation for the questions, I wrote a second 26-page paper, uh, <laughs> which I'll just use as reference. That's not to hand out, you know. But uh, um, <laughs> we'll have questions at the end. If, if we don't get to your question and, and you've really uh, got something that's going to help me to see this more clearly, check out our website, loveyourenemies.wordpress.com. We gave that earlier. And uh, hit us with your difficult questions. Uh, I, don't th- I don't believe that truth needs to fear anything. I think it's something that uh, rises to the top and has a beauty of its own. So to start off, I'd like to talk about Jesus and his ministry regarding the kingdom of God. So I want to just confirm what uh, was said earlier about Luke 4.43 that Jesus was someone who was sent to preach the gospel of the kingdom. I'm not going to follow along with the paper. I will refer to it a couple times. I'll let you know when I'm quoting from it. But uh, Jesus was somebody who preached the kingdom of God, right? We, We agree with that. We also agree that the kingdom of God is this incredible idea that one day a descendant of David will be put in the throne or put on the throne of David in Jerusalem to rule over the world forever. There's going to be lasting peace and justice and immortality. I mean, what else could you ask for in a dream of God for the future? And so this kingdom idea is what Jesus was going around preaching. And he was somebody who had the same message as John the Baptist. John the Baptist, according to Matthew 3.2, said, Repent, the kingdom of heaven is at hand. In Matthew 4.17, Jesus has the same exact phrase, Uh, on his lips. So we know that there's a continuity of message. But with Jesus did come some fresh new things that John the Baptist wasn't doing. For example, if Jesus met you and you had uh, a bad leg, he would heal your leg on the spot. Uh, If Jesus met you and you were a leper, he would hug you and your leprosy would be gone. Or maybe send you off to the temple and as you were walking, suddenly you've got baby skin all over your body. Uh, So Jesus did bring forth some fresh signs of the kingdom, and I think that's the way to interpret the miracles of Jesus as kingdom events that erupt early in the life of Jesus. Not to say that the kingdom's already here, uh, but to say that he brought signs of the kingdom. I I think of it like this. Um, If I'm driving down the highway, and I have a friend next to me in the car, and I didn't catch the sign, and I say to him, was that exit 12? And they say, yes, that was exit 12. What does that mean? Does that mean I missed exit 12? No, I missed the sign for it. It means the purpose of the sign that says exit 12 is for me to get in the right lane and get ready to get off the exit in a couple miles, right? But yet we call the sign just exit 12, right? And so Jesus brought forth these signs of the kingdom. So I think you can say Jesus brought 
the kingdom or inaugurated the kingdom or some sense like that. But I just want to be careful to define the kingdom as Jesus ruling the world from Zion. And I think that's not quite happening yet. So in his ministry, though, there were these kingdom events that happened in his life. He preached the message of the kingdom. He taught the ethics of the kingdom. And he chose 12 disciples. Isn't that funny? He didn't choose 11 or 13. He picked 12, right? And so why did he choose 12 disciples? It was because he was regathering Israel around himself and appointing the 12 leaders of the 12 tribes that would be in his cabinet. As if he was running for president, the disciples would be his cabinet. And he promised to them in Matthew 19, 28, to you 12 I will give you know, the rulership over the 12 thrones and the regeneration and so on. So when we look at Jesus' exorcisms, we find... Um, this incredible moment when the Pharisees had decided their opinion of Jesus was he's doing miracles, we can't deny that, but they're from the dark side. They're demonic, they're influenced by Beelzebul. That's how he's doing his miracles. Well, Jesus responds to this criticism very ably, using plain old logic. Duh, Satan can't fight against Satan or else how will his kingdom stand? That's just not going to work. But if I, by the Spirit of God, cast out demons then the kingdom of God has come upon you. So Jesus associated his exorcisms with kingdom activity. And we look at his inaugural sermon in Nazareth, how he quoted Isaiah 61, uh, the spirit of Yahweh is upon me because he's anointed me to preach the gospel to the poor, um, to uh, bind up the brokenhearted, proclaim liberty to the captives, freedom to the prisoners, proclaim the favorable year of Yahweh. You know, he, his own self-understanding of his ministry was thoroughly kingdom-focused. And so Jesus not only preached the message of the kingdom, but I believe he embodied the kingdom in his ministry. And so that's our starting point, and we'll go on from there to talk about these teachings on nonviolence that we find in the Sermon on the Mount. Um, what I'm saying, I think, can go for just about any ethical uh, idea, whether it's forgiveness or telling the truth. or I'm picking nonviolence because I, I, I think this is a subject that needs to be talked about and, and uh, worked on as a group. And uh, our heritage is those radical reformers from the 16th century who said of the Sermon on the Mount, we're going to just do it. Sort of like an early Nike campaign, right? Uh, the reformed line on the Sermon on the Mount was, look, Jesus gave us a Sermon on the Mount to show us how, in, how pathetic and sinful and depraved we are to think that we could ever live like this. And so the Reformed view of the Sermon on the Mount uh, was essentially that this is an indication to us that we need to be saved by faith alone, you know, and so on. Whereas the Anabaptist said, no, actually, Jesus gave the Sermon on the Mount to teach us how to live our lives. And that was extremely radical then. And it remains extremely radical. Uh, the Sermon on the Mount is absolutely staggering, the things that Jesus says to do in there. Uh, and uh, So let's get into it. Blessed are the meek, they shall inherit the earth. Matthew 5.5. 5. You should read Dietrich Bonhoeffer on this in The Cost of Discipleship. It's staggering. Uh, but suffice it to say, the meek are, according to Merriam-Webster Dictionary, those who endure injury with patience. I'm on the top left of page 8 in your paper there. The meek are those who endure injury with patience and without resentment. That's Merriam-Webster online dictionary for what it's worth. So the meek people are the ones who would never get into power. They would never inherit the land. Meek people don't inherit the land. They get squished by the warlords and those who uh, partner with them in oppressing the meek. But Jesus says, when the kingdom comes, the meek will inherit the earth. The second saying of Jesus is in Matthew 5, 8. If you have your Bible, can you follow along? Or this is on the middle left of page 8. Uh, or, yeah. It says, Blessed are the peacemakers, for they will be the children of God or the sons of God. And so I was looking at the word peacemaker in the Greek, and it's, it's a compound word just like in English. And it's the word peace and the word that means uh, to make or to do. And I, I think... I'll just read what I wrote. It may be hard for us to think differently than our typical ends justify the means mentality about this. But the peacemakers are not those who use violence to bring about peace. In other words, Jesus is commending those who do peace, not those who do war for the sake of peace. I mean, we even have a gun called the peacemaker, right? <laughs> That's, I think, missing the point. Um, 
The peacemakers, not the war makers, will be called the sons of God. And we could talk lots about peace. The New Testament majors on the subject of peace. We've got lots of references there for you. But we have to press on because time is, is constraining us, is it not? Uh, Matthew 5, 38 to 42, this is in the middle left of page 8 as well, is this non-resistance passage, this uh, paragraph, and I'll just read it to you. Matthew 5, 38 to 42, You have heard that it was said, an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth, but I say to you, do not resist an evildoer. But if anyone strikes you on the right cheek, turn the other also. And if anyone wants to sue you and take your coat, give him your cloak as well. And if anyone forces you to go one mile... Go also the second mile. Give to everyone who begs from you and do not refuse anyone who wants to borrow from you. So this instruction has to do with justice. In the book of Leviticus, in chapter 24, it has said, If a man injures his neighbor, just as he has done, so it shall be done to him. Fracture for fracture, eye for eye, tooth for tooth. The Israelite had the right to demand retributive justice in accordance to the injury that he suffered. Jesus, however, argued for a new course of action, a strategy that involved giving up one's rights. So there, in, this, in this, now this is really the hardest part to interpret in the Sermon on the Mount, I think, because there are really two main strategies, at least that I've seen, and I'm by no means an expert on this. I've just read some of the books on it, and I've noticed that they keep talking about the kingdom of God when they're talking about nonviolence. And I'm like, well, what's the deal with that? But I, I suppose if, you're, if your vision for the future is a vision of peace between nations, peace between ethnicities, peace between individuals, and peace between the animals, then it makes sense to live in peace now. But we'll get to that. Um, one strategy for this non-resistance section is to say, Jesus is arguing for passive non-resistance. And this we could call like the Amish interpretation. A lot of Anabaptists have this interpretation. And so someone who holds into to the view of passive non-resistance will say, if somebody attacked my wife and family, I would literally do nothing. I would stand there and watch it happen. That's the passive non-resistance point of view. Uh, to a battered wife, they would give the advice, turn the cheek, even if it makes you into a punching bag. That's the, that's the passive non-resistance point of view. The second interpretation that I run into a lot on this is to somehow find an exemption or reinterpretation of what Jesus is saying. So uh, you'll find commentaries saying things like, well, when Jesus was saying turn the cheek, he meant, he meant it in your heart. That in your heart you turn the cheek, but in real life, in practical situations, you knock the guy out. But in your heart you turn the cheek. And that's since Augustine been a, a mainstay of interpretation on this. Another uh, standard way to get out of this or to lessen the force of it is to say, well, in my own personal life, I'm to turn the cheek. If somebody flips me off in the car, I won't do it back to them, right? I'll turn the cheek, so to speak, in that, in that way. But if I'm employed by the United States military, I'll kill the bad guys. Uh, or if I'm employed by whatever security agency, I'll do what's required of me because it's not personal. I'm representing the United States or I'm representing the county or I'm representing this employer. Therefore, it's okay for me to somehow not follow Jesus' command and yet still say Jesus is Lord. Um, that's a very standard interpretation of this. But it's my challenge to you, my uh, pro proposition to you, that there's a third way to read this paragraph. And it's what, what I like to call, and others have called, confrontational non-resistance. And so the idea of confrontational non-resistance is that you confront the oppressor non-violently and in so doing, show him how brutal he really is. Uh, so we have to do some work on this word resist here. Uh, what does do not resist evil mean is uh, the next thing I want to talk about, especially considering the fact, and, and if you start to think about this very much at all, before long you realize Jesus resisted evil all the time. I mean, what, what's up with those seven thunderous woes against the scribes and the Pharisees in Matthew 23, or the time he took to make a whip and get the animals out of the temple in a classic demonstration of prophetic zeal for his God and the system of evil greed that was oppressing the people. That's resisting evil, isn't it? What about when evil itself came at him? When Satan tempted him in the wilderness, did he just say, yeah, I guess I should turn that stone into bread. You're right. 
No, he resisted him, and the devil fled from him. So in light of Jesus resisting evil all the time, how do we interpret him saying, do not resist evil? Is he just saying, I can resist it, but you, my followers, you can't? No, I don't think so. So the word literally means to stand against, and it was frequently used as a military term. 15 out of 17 usages in Josephus, a Jewish writing of the time, use this uh, term, stand against, to refer to when one military battle or one uh, group of men marched into battle against another group of men. When they actually met forces and the swords clanged against each other, that's what it would be this word stand against. It's to enter into combat, and it had a violent connotation. That would, besides, Jesus resisted evil all the time. So, obviously, Jesus is not a hypocrite. I think that's pretty clear. He was not prone to hypocrisy, right? He's the one that died holding to the truth and his conviction. Now, Jesus was saying that the new way should not combat evil with evil. That's what he's saying here. Uh, and when we get to Paul and Peter, we see that they reiterate Jesus' command in this way. They, they don't say, don't resist an evil person. They say, never return evil for evil. So that's how they re- recapitulate Jesus' statement to not resist an evil person. Jesus is saying, don't fight fire with fire. Fight fire with water. All three of these examples, I think, can be interpreted either way. If you want to take them in a passive non-resistance way or a confrontational non-resistance way. But to take them as uh, anything else, I, I don't see how you can do that, honestly. Uh, I should also mention, by the way, that my stake's in the ground. My theological stake is in the ground. I'll just expose to you my bias right now. In the statement, Jesus is Lord. That's where I'm at. So if Jesus says do something, I'm going to do it. Okay, so... Uh, somebody mentioned to me, well, what are you going to do if Jesus comes back and commands you to fight in his army in, Ma- in Revelation 19? I say, I'll do whatever he says. He's the Lord. That's what Lord means. You know what I mean? So that's where my theological stake is planted. So if you can show me that Jesus said something different, you know, I'd be interested in that during the question time. So there's this guy named Walter Wink. He's a professor. In, uh, he used to be at Union. Now he's uh, somewhere else in, in New York City. And he has really done a lot of cultural work on these three examples Jesus gave. Isn't it great that he gave us examples? So he didn't just leave us with don't resist an evil person and then take off and go on to the next. He gave us three examples. So these examples, I take it, are explanatory to help us understand his statement. The first example is whoever strikes you on the right cheek, turn to him the left also. Dustin, could I have you come forward as our model it's important to note that about this time, about this time, roughly uh, 3%, you know, a vast minority of the people were extremely wealthy. And then there were two other classes, poor and dirt poor. So, uh, and then I guess the, I learned a new class today where the dirt is richer than you. I, I never heard that before. That's great. Uh, but the, the, the idea is that in their society, there was a vast difference between the haves and the have-nots. And in all likelihood, the people standing there at the Sermon on the Mount are the peasants. They're the people that don't have the money. And so this was something that would happen in their society is somebody would strike you on the cheek, and it was, uh, as we'll see, a way to humiliate somebody. So I chose Dustin to be our uh, example for this. But uh, when, I, when we first read the statement strike you on the right cheek, you're probably thinking a right hook, which would be like this, right? Now, which cheek is that of yours, Dustin? That's my left cheek. That's his left cheek, right? So you think, okay, it must be a left hook. That would hit his right cheek, right? But the left hand was only used for unseemly purposes in their culture. And to you even gesture with it, according to Walter Wink, now he's studied this stuff I haven't, but according to him, to even gesture with the left hand would bring shame on yourself, okay, in their culture at that time. So how am I going to hit this cheek with this hand? Backhand. I'm going to have to backhand him, right? And so when I... Pictures. Stop taking pictures. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> Evidence. <laughs> he's not nonviolent after all. That Finnegan, he's a... I've got evidence. I've been beating up Dustin, you know. Um, stay, stay just a while longer. Uh, we're almost done. <laughs> Can you hold him? <laughs> But uh, so the idea is that a backhand is not used to inflict harm. Yeah, it would hurt, obviously, but it's not the sort of thing that you're using to like kill somebody or beat somebody severely. It's used as a way to humiliate somebody, to put them in their place. It's always from uh, one step down. So like, for example, it would be from a Roman to a Jew, 
from a Jewish landowner to a Jewish peasant, from a master to a slave, from a parent to a child, but it would not be between equals. And their society was extremely stratified. You have a hierarchy where everybody knows their place. And everybody, the whole society works based on honor and shame, as Dustin had mentioned before. So to do this to somebody would be saying, you need to get in your place. It would be a way of me dominating him, not literally beating him up. They would use a whip for that to flog them. (laughs) So, but what does Jesus say? What does Jesus say? Turn the other cheek. So let me slap him. Now turn the other cheek. There you go. So now, turn sideways so they can all see how you've turned the cheek. Now what's, it, what's in the way? His teeth and his nose and his forehead. All the parts of his uh, face that probably wouldn't feel too good on my hand to hit, right? So he's, he's turned the cheek. I don't want to backhand him again, but boy, look at that target. Look at that big, fat left cheek, you know, that just is inviting me for a right hook, isn't it? Right there. Thank you. You can sit down. That was great. Uh, This is according to Walter Wink. Uh, I'm quoting him. By turning the other cheek, the person struck puts the striker in an untenable spot. He cannot repeat the backhand because the other's nose is now in the way. I guess he could if he really wanted to, you know. The left cheek makes a fine target, but only persons who are equals fight with fists. And the last thing the master wants is for the slave to assert equality. This, of course, is no way to avoid trouble. The master might have the slave flogged to within an inch of her life, but the point has been irrevocably made. The inferior is saying in no uncertain terms, I won't take such treatment anymore. I am your equal. I am a child of God. So that puts the person who's abusing the other person in a spot where they have to choose between two things. One is, stop, you know, don't hit them again. And the other idea is, uh, got to hit them as an equal. Either way, it's, it's better than what it was. I imagine, I imagine the common response to getting slapped like that in their society was just to boil inside in shame and contempt for this evil person who's hitting you. Don't you think that was a normal response in their culture? It's not like you could take them to the court. You know, when the, when the rich have, have the uh, courts in their pockets, you know, and you're one of the poor people, what are you going to do? Jesus is giving them a way to confront this, this evil system nonviolently, or maybe not system, but to confront, confront this evil act nonviolently. Okay, let's go to the next one. If anyone wants to sue you for your coat, let them have your tunic also. In the Luke version, it says, if somebody wants to sue you for your tunic, give them your coat also. It works either way. But here's the way that I thought about this when I first read it. I thought to myself, all right, I've got about eight shirts just here alone. Now, I'm going to Florida next so it's not just for these three days, all right, guys? You know, get, get, cut, me, cut me a break here. But in our society, clothing's mass-produced. If somebody sued me for one of my 20 shirts, I'd give them one of my three or four coats. Big deal, right? Not in their society. Not if you were poor. In their society, there were two main garments. You'd have your tunic, which was worn next to the skin, a full-length garment. And then you'd have your coat, which would, which would go over top if it's cold out just like coats are today, but it's, think more like a robe than you think of just like our coats that only cut off at the waist or something like that. And so if, the, and if somebody was really poor, they would even sleep in their coat. That would double as their blanket. And the Old Testament said you're not allowed to take that away from somebody. You have to give it back to them each night so that they don't uh, pray against you, and then that would be bad because God listens to the prayer of the oppressed. So Jesus says, oh, we'll get to what Jesus says in just a second. So if someone had no land, no crops, no other way to pay his debt, he could be sued for the clothes off his back. We're talking about someone who has suffered misfortune after misfortune. He has nothing left. He has succumbed to the economic squeeze of Romanization. And so what does Jesus say? Give him your last garment. So somebody sued you for everything and they stopped just short of stripping you naked. Jesus says, give him the last thing too. Okay, let's play this out. If you only have two garments and you're in court and they've just taken one and you give them the last one, what's the implication here? You're going to be naked in court. Dustin? Is that a Velcro suit you've got on? You can just rip that off? 
It's great having you here, Carl. You're just the stand-up comedian thing. All right, this is Walter Wink again. Nakedness was taboo in Judaism. Well, it's taboo in here too, right? I mean, would any of you be uncomfortable if I was standing here completely naked, right? I would be. Nakedness remains a taboo thing in almost every society. Uh, But nakedness was really taboo in Judaism. And shame fell less on the naked party than on the person viewing or causing the nakedness. By stripping, the debtor is has brought the creditor under the, shame, the same prohibition that led to the curse of Canaan. Remember that? When Noah got off the ark and Ham, you know, uncovering the nakedness and saw his nakedness and all that. This is the same thing that caused the curse of Canaan that is being put on this other person by, the, by them stripping. And much as Isaiah had walked naked and barefoot for three years. You guys ever read that and be like, what? As a prophetic sign, so the debtor parades his nakedness in prophetic protest against a system that has deliberately rendered him destitute. I'm skipping down a sentence or two. The entire system by which debtors are oppressed has been publicly unmasked. The creditor is revealed to be not a legitimate money owner, but a party to the reduction of an entire social class to landlessness, destitution, and abasement. Especially during the time of Jesus. Herod Antipas was really taxing the people heavily. He was building, or Sephiroth was already built, but he was building uh, on the sea there, was it Tiberius on the sea? And he was really trying to make the land produce to impress Caesar. Uh, it was a heavy load on the people. This unmasking is not simply punitive, therefore. It offers the creditor a chance to see, perhaps for the first time in his life, what his practices cause and to repent. The person is confronting the unjust system by doing this act that Jesus tells him. All right, let's go to the, na- the last one. Whoever forces you to go one mile, go with him too. Now, Romans were hated in their society. I mean, the Jewish people considered their land, and some of them still consider their land, the holy land, right? Uh, it, back in the time when, when Jesus was walking this earth, there was a serious resentment to an occupying foreign Gentile force, as you might imagine. I mean, just imagine if the Chinese took over the United States and you had soldiers walking around. How would you feel about those soldiers? Especially if you believe that this was God's country that he promised to our ancestors and so on. And you would be really stiff, you know, upset about that. Uh, And so there was this whole controversy about taxes, AD 6. There was a whole huge thing that happened with Judas the Galilean. AD 66, you had the revolution that ended in the destruction of the temple in 70. And so on. And so this was a controversial subject that Jesus is stepping his, his toes onto, right? He's saying, if somebody wants to go with you, wants you to go one mile. This is the practice called Andrea. It's a typical thing that happened throughout the Roman Empire where a soldier would compel or force a peasant to carry his pack. The pack would be 65 to 85 pounds. Now, just imagine what your average Jew would feel about this situation. You have a Roman soldier come to your town marching through and he, he, get, he gets you, you know, maybe you, try, you saw him, you tried to get away or, oh, I've got something to do, you know, <laughs> try to get out of there, right? But somehow the, he's cornered you in and he said, carry my pack. You know, he's got his soul, sword there and, you know, maybe there's other soldiers around or whatever. So you regretfully take the pack onto your back and you start walking. And it's heavy. It could be as much as 80 pounds. And the shame you would feel, the redness of your face. You've been made a donkey to carry the load of Rome's, this Gentile dog nation, to carry their military gear. You're aiding the Roman army. I mean, how would you feel as you had to carry this thing? And it's not like it was an option. And so I imagine that your average Jewish peasant got to the first milestone dropped that pack like there was no tomorrow, kicked up some dust, spit on the ground, cursed an Aramaic, and ran home. Or something like that, right? He wasn't going to like, stay around and be like, so, you want to do lunch? You know what I mean? I mean, we're talking about people that are oppressed and that have serious resentment for good reasons. And so, Jesus says something absolutely absurd. It's the most ridiculous thing in the world. He says, go with him two miles. What? Excuse me, Jesus, are you a Roman sympathizer? Are you saying that we should help the Romans to stay in power over us? Are you crazy? You know, but 
There was another law, another half to the Angeria law. The first half was, if a Roman soldier forced you, you had to go for one mile. The second half was, he's not allowed to go more than a mile. At a mile, that's where it cut off. This practice had been abused. We have some documents from Egypt that talk about this, how the soldiers were abusing this practice. It was already a hated practice, and they were cracking down on it. And they said, only one mile. And you didn't know what the punishment might be. The centurion might give you barley rations instead of wheat, or he may make you stand all day in front of his tent, barefoot holding a clod of dirt. Or he may have you flogged or arrested. The soldier just didn't know what kind of punishment would come if he got caught forcing a Jew to go more than one mile. But here's what would happen. Imagine this scene. The Jewish peasant is carrying the pack. He sees the one mile mark and he keeps going. The Roman soldier is suddenly mystified because nobody does that. I mean, nobody, not in Syria, not in Egypt, not in Palestine. Come on. Nobody goes an inch more than a mile, right? And he keeps walking. And so the soldier says, you know, um, excuse me, uh, I need to have my uh, bag back. And the the Jewish peasant says, no, I'm going to carry it for a second mile. And he keeps walking, right? Imagine the soldier. He's, he's starting to get nervous now. Give me back my bag. You know, you can't take that a second mile. I'm doing it anyhow. And he's, you know, running along there. And suddenly something interesting has happened. And this is what Walter Wink says about that. He says, the soldier is thrown off balance by being deprived of the predictability of the victim's response. And evil thrives in predictability, doesn't it? He has never dealt with such a problem before. Imagine the soldier dealing with this problem. He's never dealt with this before. Now he has been forced into making a decision for which nothing in his previous experience has prepared him. If he has enjoyed feeling superior to the vanquished, he will not enjoy it today. Imagine the situation of a Roman infantryman pleading with a Jew to give back his pack. The humor of this scene may have escaped us, but it could scarcely have been lost on Jesus' hearers, who must have been regaled at the prospect of thus discomforting their oppressors. Jesus does not encourage Jews to walk a second mile in order to build up merit in heaven or to exercise a supererogatory piety or to kill the soldier with kindness. He is helping oppressed people find a way to protest and neutralize an onerous practice despised throughout the empire. So here's, here's their world. Okay, We have to put our minds into their world where you're a poor Jewish peasant who's being oppressed and oppression is just going to come your way. That's just the facts of life. I mean, we deal with oppression in our time, but imagine it if there weren't the, the sorts of laws that we have today to protect us, right? Uh, it was even worse where you could get oppressed in all sorts of different ways, whether it be humiliated, um, financially persecuted to the point where you were destitute, run off your ancestral land, or whether it was the Romans coming. Goodness, not the Romans. Um, and so there were different responses to the oppression that people had. The Sadducees, their slogan, if you can't beat them, join them. Right? If you can't beat the injustices that are coming at you, partner with them and it'll go well for you. Just just help the Romans. That's what the Sadducees decided to do. The Essenes said, this world is messed up. I can't, this temple is all corrupted. Let's just go out into the desert and form a holy society and not let any bad people in. That's the Essene response to this sort of thing. And then you have the zealots, right? Revolution! You know, this is God's country. God can't steer a parked car. Let's move. Let, can anybody read the story of Joshua and Canaan? Let's get these... Gentiles out of here, right? And they won out the people's opinion by about AD 66. And their solution ended with the destruction of the temple and uh, the beginning of the end of the Jewish living in that land. So we know that it wasn't ultimately good. But what does Jesus say? See, because Jesus is Lord. So what does Jesus say? Jesus says, or how do we... How does a follower of this Jewish rabbi behave in the face of injustice? Firstly, don't become what you hate. Don't enter into combat with evil on its own terms. That's that stand against, resist evil in that way. Rather, find creative ways to confront it self-sacrificially. Incredibly, by doing this, you discover your own dignity and the oppressor is thrown off guard and challenged to rethink his participation in the system. So, I, I propose, I, I'm 
going to be on the bottom right of page 11 in a second. I propose there are really two options for interpreting the non-resistance passage. One is passive non-resistance. The other is confrontational non-resistance. But I'll let you decide what you think is, what you think is better. The next one is love your enemies. Matthew 5, 43 to 48. You have heard that it was said, you shall love your neighbor and hate your enemy. But I say to you, love your enemies, pray for those who persecute you, so that you may be the children of your Father in heaven. For he makes the sun to rise on the evil and on the good, and sends rain on the righteous and the unrighteous. For if you love those who love you, what reward do you have? Do not even the tax collectors do the same? Jesus is reaching for an extreme illustration. Even the IRS does that. You know, I mean, the tax collectors get it in probably every society, right? Uh, and, if, and if you greet only your brothers and sisters, what more are you doing than that? Do not even the Gentiles do that? You know, even the, even the barbarians do that, right? Be perfect, therefore, as your heavenly Father is perfect. This, I argue, is related to Leviticus 19, 18, where this is quoted from. Jesus quotes, you shall love your, na- your neighbor as yourself, right? And then he quotes the second part, but it's not from the Bible. But it was a saying the people had. You know, you heard it was said, you shall love your neighbor and hate your enemy. Well, the first half of that, the love your neighbor part, is clearly biblical, Leviticus 19.18. In verse 16 it says, You shall not go about as a slanderer among your people. You shall not hate your fellow countrymen in your heart, nor bear any grudge against the sons of your people. But you shall love your neighbor as yourself. So basically the heart of Leviticus 19, that little bit at the end of the chapter, is live as a family. Take care of each other. Don't bear a grudge against your fellow Jew. You know, love each other the way a family should love each other. You're children of Abraham here. And so that was the Constitution. That was how the people were supposed to live in the land. Um, It did not prohibit nationalism. And once you've been oppressed and conquered by the Babylonians, the Persians, the Macedonians, the Ptolemies, the Seleucids, a little break with the Hasmonean dynasty, but towards the end of it, it kind of felt like it kind of felt like a foreign oppression. And then the Romans, once you've been oppressed by and conquered by all these different nations, by the time you get to the time of Jesus, the saying was known, love your neighbor and hate your enemy. It was just the way people thought about things. Love your fellow Jew, but that, that Gentile over that Roman over there, we're not going to love him. We're going to hate him. And for just reason, that's how they were thinking. And so Jesus says, love your enemy. What? It's just shocking, isn't it? I remember the first time that uh, somebody brought this in its full force to me. I was sitting in my office, and I had developed an elaborate theology to exempt myself from the the turn-the-cheek section. It was really quite creative. But I I, had gotten myself out of that. And he's arguing with me that, you know, you should not kill people and stuff like that. And I was, you know, saying, like, well, you know, what if somebody attacked my house, yada, yada, yada. Uh, And so he says to me, Sean, is it loving to punch somebody in the head. And I said, no, I don't think that's loving. You know, I mean, that's pretty obvious, right? He said, is it loving to kill somebody? I said, no, it's not. Well, he said, Jesus said, love your enemies, Sean. And I'm just like, yeah, but I couldn't think of any comeback. I could not think of a response. And And that is the first moment that I said to myself, I guess I should love my enemies. Darn, I don't want to love my enemies. I want to hate my enemies. I want to pray that God punishes them and, you know, do things to them to hurt them. That's what I want to do. That's what my flesh cries out to do. But Jesus says to love your enemies. And I guess that's the, the basis of the case here. In, in the Luke version, in Luke 6, he says, Do good to those who hate you. Bless those who curse you. And the question is, why should one follow this upside-down course of action with regard to the enemy. But Jesus explains the reason for us, doesn't he? So that we would be children like our Father. Our Father puts the rain on the righteous and on the unrighteous. And so it's not an imperfect love that only loves those who love them, but it's a perfect love that loves everyone, even those who hate them. And so I'm on the top right of page 12 now. Let's talk about Jesus as an example. What is universally acknowledged by Christian and non-Christian alike even to this day, is that Jesus was no hypocrite. He was a man who practiced what he preached. Amen? Anybody out there still? And so when we read, I know it's the end of a long day, so I'll try to get... Dustin, come back up. No, I'm just kidding. You guys like that part, right? When I beat up Dustin a little bit. 
<laughs> he was a man who practiced what he preached. Also, when we read these staggering words in the Sermon on the Mount, we are not left without an example of the way of Jesus looks like in full color. We can actually look at Jesus and say, that's what it looks like to live the Sermon on the Mount. Jesus said, Blessed are the meek. And when he was given an opportunity to seize the royal robes of world rulership from the fist of Satan, Jesus refused and instead entrusted himself to God's way. Jesus said, Blessed are the peacemakers. And throughout his ministry, not least in his exorcisms, he made peace with people. And through his death, of course, he made peace between us and God, didn't he? And so when Jesus said, Do not resist an evil person, turn the cheek, give your undergarment, walk the second mile, when his beard was ripped out and his garments were torn off and the cross was placed on his back by Roman soldiers, he uttered no threats, he harbored no bitterness, and yet through it all he looked them in the eye and confronted their savagery by providing them a ready mirror which reflected back to them their own brutality. And we know that one centurion declared, after seeing how Jesus died, this was the Son of God. He could have called legions of angels, couldn't he? But he did not choose that path. Jesus, who said, love your enemy, washed Judas's feet in full knowledge of what Judas was going to do. He spoke the truth to Pilate, and in a moment that must have staggered the world, he said, Father, forgive them. They know not what they do while he was being crucified. So throughout his ministry, even during his trials, torture, and crucifixion, Jesus lived the way that he taught in the Sermon on the Mount. And that puts to rest this idea that it's an impossible ideal because we've seen it done. But I can already hear the objection. Sean, that was Jesus. I'm just a sinner saved by grace. You expect me to do what Jesus did? Come on, that's too hard. First of all, I think once we do accept the gospel and repent, God does make us saints. You know, I think to self-identify as a sinner is just not psychologically helpful. Uh, not to say that we're perfect, but you know, the Bible does call... Uh, uh, converted people, saints, and uh, they always self-identify not as saints. They don't say, I'm Saint Sean. You know? say, I'm the servant of God, you know, the doulos, the bond slave of God. I think that's a better way to look at ourselves than calling ourselves sinners all the time. It's a side point. You know? um, but uh, in Peter, it, it talks about how Jesus' crucifixion is not just to take away our sins, to deal with our sins, but it's also an example for us to follow in his steps. You ever heard that uh, famous phrase, in his steps before? You know, there's a book called In His Steps. And so, for, this is what Peter says, 1 Peter 2.21. For to this you have been called, because Christ also suffered for you, leaving you an example so that you should follow in his steps. He committed no sin, and no deceit was found in his mouth. When he was abused, he raised an army and killed them all. Oh, wait, no, that's not, that's not there. When he was abused, he did not return abuse. When he suffered, he did not threaten, but he entrusted himself to the one who judges justly. If you have your Bible, I'm going now to Romans chapter 12, or I think it's in the paper as well. Romans chapter 12, and I'm going to read verse 14. Because if this is really something that Jesus taught, blessed are the meek, blessed are the, those who do peace, and, bless, and uh, do not resist an evil person, and... Love your enemy. If these are teachings of Jesus, then we would expect his apostles would also echo these teachings, wouldn't they? If they're not teaching this, that would make us suspicious. Maybe we got that wrong. We have to reinterpret it or something. But what we find in Romans chapter 12, verse 14, is Paul, the apostle, saying the following. Bless those who persecute you. Bless and do not curse them. Verse 17. Do not repay anyone evil for evil. But take thought for what is noble in the sight of all. If it is possible, so far as it depends on you, live peaceably with all. Behold, never avenge yourselves, but leave room for the wrath of God. For it is written, Vengeance is mine, I will repay, says the Lord. No, if your enemies are hungry, feed them. If they are thirsty, give them something to drink. For by doing this, you will heap burning coals on their heads. Do not be overcome by evil but overcome evil with good. Just some more impractical advice from the Apostle. Now let's go on to Peter. The Apostle Peter. You know, If Peter really was the one who followed Jesus around and he heard these teachings, wouldn't he echo them somewhere in, in his, his epistles? I would think so. 1 Peter 3, verse 8. 
Finally, all of you have unity of spirit, sympathy, love for one another, a tender heart, and a humble mind. Verse 9. Do not repay evil for evil or abuse for abuse, but on the contrary, repay with a blessing. It is for this that you were called, that you might inherit a blessing. He goes on to say, if somebody attacks you or, or challenges you, defend yourself, yet with gentleness and respect. Whether it's dialogue or in other ways, I would, I would say. So let's, let's talk about some of these other huge events. So we have the resurrection of Jesus. The resurrection of Jesus is, without exaggeration, the biggest event that's ever happened in the world. Probably next to creation. You know what I mean? The, that the world is here is pretty big. But when Jesus was crucified... The cross already had a symbolic meaning in their culture and in their world. The symbol of the cross was a hated symbol, and it was a symbol of Roman domination and the right of Caesar to rule the world by raw violence. That's what the cross meant. And so by killing Jesus, that meant he's not a true Messiah, he's dead, he's a troublemaker, or he's a, a, a rabble-rouser, or whatever. But in the resurrection, what we have is a vindication. Suddenly, God has flipped this whole thing upside down because the last thing the empire has on you is the ability to torture and kill you. And God has just trumped that in the resurrection. The resurrection of Jesus breaks the power of Caesar to oppress using even crucifixion, the extremist form of oppression. And so it breaks the power of death. It breaks the power that Satan has to use these puppet kings to rule the world the way Satan wants to rule the world. And it sets open a whole new course of action. And there's then a question of allegiance. You know, who's really the Lord of the world? Dustin touched on this this year and last year. Who is the Lord of the world? Is it Caesar? Is it the case that all the coins I'm looking at that say Caesar in a picture of his head and it says Son of God, is he the Son of God? Not if Jesus is raised from the dead, according to Paul in Romans chapter 1. If Jesus is raised from the dead, Jesus is the one with the right to rule the world. Jesus is Lord. That's what Lord means. He's the one that has the right to rule the world. And so there's a question of allegiance that starts there uh, for for the Christians, especially non-Jewish Christians. The next thing is the Holy Spirit. I don't have hardly any time left to talk about these things, but if you're interested in the paper, read it. Uh, It is a bit long. Sorry about that. But the Holy Spirit is this huge event that and both resurrection and Holy Spirit, from an Old Testament perspective, are only supposed to come when the kingdom comes. If you're just reading the Old Testament about the resurrection, it's this grand event that happens to everyone at the end of time when the kingdom's here. If you're reading the, the Old Testament about the pouring out of the Holy Spirit, it happens in this kingdom context, this eschatological context. And so, what's, what do we have happening? The Messiah has come. Everybody knows that when the Messiah comes, the Messianic age dawns. You know, something huge is supposed to happen when the Messiah comes. The world's not going to be the same anymore if the Messiah comes. We have this resurrection, which is a kingdom event. We have the Holy Spirit being poured out on the people, which is a kingdom event. And we have this new covenant, which is also spoken of in the context of the kingdom in the Old Testament. But the writer of Hebrews is very happy to say that it's been inaugurated. We have a new and living way through the blood of Christ. And so what I'm saying to you is that Things have changed. The world's not the same anymore for the people of God. It was not wrong for the saints of old to use violence as God directed them. But things have changed. The Messiah has come. A resurrection has occurred. The Spirit has been poured out. And now the people of God have a new role to play. Not the role as being the national Israel, but the role of being the international family of those who believe and testify to this age of peace that is on the horizon, the kingdom of God. Isn't it interesting that uh, the early church argued the way, you know, the early church argued about its existence. This is on the top left of page 22. So we've made progress. There's only 26 pages, so we're getting there. Don't you feel like you're chugging along here? This is great. Just go along with it. No, I'm just kidding. All right. The early church, this is on the top left of page 22. The early church reasoned that if they were going to testify to the gospel of peace, that God would ultimately fix up this world and establish everlasting peace, then they should begin to live in peace already. That's how they worked it out. Their prophetic witness to the world was that since the Messiah had come, since the new covenant was here, it only made sense to beat their swords into plowshares and embark on a life of nonviolent peace. 
And this is the most staggering thing of all. You find these early Christians arguing with Jews, and the Jewish person would say to them, I don't think Jesus is the Messiah. If Jesus is the Messiah, where's the kingdom? Right? Isn't that the objection that a Jewish person would have to Jesus as Messiah? And this is what the early Christians would say in the 2nd and 3rd centuries. They would say, doesn't your Hebrew Bible say that when Messiah comes, the law will go out from Zion and the nations, the Gentiles, will beat their swords into plowshares and their spears into pruning hooks and they will no longer learn war? Doesn't your Bible say that? Look at us Christians. We come from all these different tribes, all these different nations, and we have learned the new law that comes from Zion, and we have beaten our swords into plowshares. We study war no more. We are at peace. We were savage murderers, and now we are at peace with our fellow man. And if they throw us in the Colosseum, we don't act violently. That's, that was their argument. Take it or leave it. Imagine trying to make that argument today. A Jewish person comes to you and says, I don't believe Jesus is the Messiah. You say, well, look at the Christians. We're all at peace. It just wouldn't have the same force these days, would it? But that's how they argued about it. They said, look at us. I've got all these different quotes in your paper. I won't read them all, just, just a, a couple here. Uh, this is at the end of the letter to Diognetus, which is 2nd century. He says, they are unknown, talking about the Christians. They love all men and are persecuted by all. They are unknown and condemned. They are put to death and restored to life. They are poor, yet they make many rich. They are in lack of all things, yet abound to all. They are dishonored, and yet in their very dishonor are glorified. They are evil spoken of, and yet are justified. They are reviled and bless. They are insulted and repay with insult the honor. Repay the insult with honor. They do good, yet are punished as evildoers. When punished, they rejoice as if quickened to life. They are assailed by the Jews as foreigners and are persecuted by the Greeks. Yet those who hate them are unable to assign any reason for their hatred. Isn't that just a marvelous description of early Christianity? From uh, the first century, we have the Didache, which talks about the uh, way of God and the, way of, uh, the, 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 the good way and the bad way. And they say, follow the good way, the way of God. And it says, love God, love your neighbor, love your enemy. If he, if he hits you in the cheek, turn your other cheek also. It's like the third thing they say as of utmost importance for new Christians. Justin Martyr in AD 60 says, We who formerly used to murder one another do not now only refrain from making war upon our enemies, but also that we may not lie nor deceive our examiners, willingly die confessing Christ. And Justin Martyr, you get that he was martyred for the faith from his name, right? Tertullian, Hippolytus, Origen, you know, I urge you, if this topic interests you or if you, you think I'm full of it, read these early Christian writings that I have quoted in this paper. Because even if they're wrong, this is just how they thought. So if they are wrong, it's the burden of proof is on, some, on the other person to demonstrate how did this mutation of nonviolence enter the church. You know, like, for, for example, with other subjects, we might say, well, the early Christians got off base here. But we can document how that mutation occurred, can't we? If you can't document the mutation, then we're a conspiracy theorist. I don't want to be a conspiracy theorist. I want to know the truth, and I want to look at what the Bible says. Surprisingly, the brutal persecution by the state did not bring about Christian violence. Imagine that if the United States decided to suddenly start persecuting and murdering Christians on national TV for entertainment. That's about the level of what they were going through. Wouldn't so many Christian communities rise up, find some weapons, and defend their towns? Not in the early church. The early church never did that. Even when their numbers were sufficient where they could have won the city, they never did it. Rather, it was the invitation. I'm on the top left of page 25. Rather, it was the invitation to imperial power that wooed the church from her radical kingdom witness. Rome got a Christian president, as it were. So there's a shift that occurs with Constantine. This is how John Yoder put it. Before Constantine... It took courage to be a Christian. After Constantine, it took courage to be a pagan. That's how Yoder put it. So there is this shift that occurs, and the Christians merge with the state and go from being the persecuted to the persecutor. This is on page 26 at the bottom right. We could summarize the case for nonviolence in the following manner. Jesus, the mediator of the new covenant, 
commanded his followers to love their enemies. That's number one. Jesus says to love your enemies. Number two, the apostles confirmed this teaching with instructions to never return evil for evil and overcome evil with good. Number three, the early Christians for more than 200 years were faithful to Jesus' teaching on nonviolence. They just were. I mean, they might have been wrong, but that's what they, that's what they were. Number four, under Constantine, who used the name of Christ on his shields and his soldiers in order to violently conquer Rome, the church was duped into thinking that a new change had occurred, making the way of Jesus obsolete. Now the emperor was a Christian, which meant that the empire was a Christian nation, and the church should support Rome, even if it meant compromising the way of Jesus. These are historical facts. I mean, and, and when this happened, a lot of Christians just said, forget this, I'm going to the desert. And there was a mass exodus of these desert fathers and mothers who went out to live in the desert. Finally, number five, Ambrose and then Augustine developed the necessary theology to ensure Christian cooperation with the state through just war theology. Augustine's uh, way of doing it was to internalize the commands of Jesus. So in your heart, you love your enemy, but if you're the executioner, you cut, you cut his head off, you know, because that's your job. Um, the early peace witness mutated with time, largely due to the irresistible temptation to make Rome a Christian nation. When Constantine invited the persecuted bride of Christ into his imperial bedchamber, he adorned her with a scarlet dress, fit for a princess, and whispered innumerable sweet promises of protection and fidelity if she would only wed herself to Rome. The bride, who was already betrothed to the Jew from Nazareth, exchanged her white garments and adorned them that were adorned with the blood of the Lamb and the martyrdom for the, of the saints for the comfortable silk royal robes of imperial glory. She was beguiled by the serpent and before long switched from persecuted to persecutor, from salt to just more manure. Her new husband and lord, Caesar, brainwashed her to believe that spiritual warfare was not enough. The army of Christ must fight with the sword in order to defend the kingdom of God from the barbarians. Before long, the church's light grew dim. Faith in the kingdom was transplanted for an abstract idea for heaven. And the church merged with the state to produce Christendom. Ironically, once Christians got into political power, the peace of Rome, the Pax Romana, ended. And Rome began to decline rapidly. And a thick river of blood reaches from that day to this, filled with the violent acts of Christendom against the heretics, that would be us, the Jews, the Muslims, and whoever else gets in the way. It's time for the bride of Christ to wake up from this bloody nightmare and call for a divorce from the serpent and his client kings. Maybe, just maybe, the slaughtered lamb will have the slaughtering bride back if she will repent of her wicked complicity with the empire. Maybe she could put her sword down and take off the mantle of power, the royal robes of Babylon, and adorn herself once again in the wedding dress washed clean by the forgiveness available through the blood of the Lamb. Then perhaps the church could begin to testify that her groom is the Prince of Peace, not the Lord of War. Conservative theologian Ben Witherington puts it this way, The issue I am raising is just this. Can Christians in good conscience participate in violence? Many Christians would, of course, say yes. They will not interpret thou shalt not murder in a way that prohibits such activity, nor will they interpret the Sermon on the Mount the way I and many other pacifists do. I respect these other opinions, but I am quite convinced they are wrong. Before Constantine, Christians simply refused to serve in the military, refused to cooperate with violence, and were often killed because of it. They saw this as a matter of ethical principle, and so do I. And this is the part I really like. It is the job of Christians to provide the world with a window on the future eschatological kingdom. We are meant to be a preview of coming attractions. Isn't that nice? Wouldn't that be great if the church was a preview of the kingdom? As the prophets foretold about peace on earth and goodwill to all humans, call us the loyal opposition to the majority in any given age. This in turn means that the ethics applicable to general persons in culture are not the same as the ethics required of Christians who signed on to follow Jesus. We know from Romans 13 that the government is authorized, ordained by God, to use violence to punish the wicked. That's clear. Government has a role to play. Romans 12 tells us that 
as Christians, our role is to never repay evil with evil, to feed our enemy if he's hungry, and so on. I'm finishing now. As Christians, we are called to embody the kingdom, to bring forth signs of God's future, and testify that the Messiah has come, that we have been justified already in anticipation of the justification of the whole world. Our message is that there's something worth living and dying for. There's something lasting, something beautiful, the kingdom of God. It's time to lay down our sword, pick up our cross, and follow the one who stood power on its head, who won the greatest victory by losing his life to to a state execution. Our testimony says the story didn't end there because God raised him from the dead. Therefore, the world is not the same because Jesus, not Caesar, is Lord. The question is whether or not will we take him seriously. As Jesus said, Luke 6.46, Why do you call me Lord, Lord, and do not do what I tell you? If you enjoyed what you heard here, why not give Restitutio a five-star rating in iTunes or Stitcher? Doing so will help others find this podcast and inspire them to love God, follow Christ, and seek truth wherever it leads. Thanks for listening, and check us out online at restitutio.org, where you can find an archive of all the podcasts, as well as a bunch of articles and links to other resources. And remember, the truth has nothing to fear.